Hello and welcome to Winter Faith with Fraser. I am your host, Andrew Fraser, and I am grateful that you are listening to me this morning, or if you're listening to the afternoon, or if you're listening at night. Either way, glad you are uh, taking an opportunity to check out. This is my fifth podcast, and my fifth podcast is going to be on the topic of shame and kind of healing the shame that binds us. So I want to start with the story that is in the in the Bible of Peter. And if you don't know who Peter is, that's okay. Uh, if you do know who Peter is, that's okay too. But I just want to start us off by giving you a little bit of a background of who he is. He's one of the apostles of Jesus. He's a fisherman. And he is kind of in the inner circle of Jesus' life. Jesus had 12 disciples, but he also had three people, um, James, John, and Peter, that he was particularly close to. And so this is the story of Peter um, later in the life of Jesus, before actually the end of his life. And at this time, Jesus is, is talking about his um, eventual death. And during this this time, Peter just doesn't want to hear it. Peter had a different idea of what Jesus' life should look like towards the end. And so this is a couple of conversations that I want to read between Jesus and Peter. So Jesus is talking to Peter, and he's telling him about the end of his life. And Jesus is saying, you know, some people are going to fall away from the faith. Some people, when I die, are going to be scattered and going to disown me. And Peter speaks up and says, even if all fall away, I will not disown you. So Peter is saying, no matter what happens, Jesus, no matter who leaves you, even if everybody else on the planet goes against you, I will not leave you. And Jesus says, Peter, I tell you the truth. Today, yes, even tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted, even if I, uh, even if I die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So now we're going to fast forward a little bit to the night of Jesus's arrest, the night of Jesus's trial, and the night that that Jesus is going to be. Um, sentenced to crucifixion. It says, While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with the Nazarene Jesus, she said, but Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, Peter denied. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, You surely are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he called, and he began to call down curses on them, and he swore to them, I don't know this man. I don't know who, what you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. 
before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Now, I want us to think about something here. Typically, we have heard this story, or I have heard this story, talked about from a position of guilt. And there certainly is guilt that Jesus, um, or that that is caused by Jesus, that's caused by Peter, um, that happens because Peter has felt like he's done something wrong. But I want us to think about what if Jesus was looking at Peter as he said these things? What if Jesus was standing near Peter where he could kind of see what was going on? That's going to bring into a new element if we think about Peter saying, I'm never going to disown you. I'll never leave you. I'm going to die with you no matter what. But then he comes back and he denies him and says, I don't know this man. I don't know who he's talking about. I have no idea who Jesus is. I am a Galilean, but I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who he is. If we think about that kind of role that Peter, or not the role, but what he's saying, I think that what he is dealing with more so when he breaks down and weeps that that at the end of this at the end of this story Peter is experiencing a deep level of shame. I think the shame probably runs even deeper than the guilt at this point. Because shame is a little bit different than guilt. Guilt is kind of if we've done something wrong i think we can experience uh guilt but a uh, shame is something that is a little bit deeper as in um i'm defect i'm defective as a person a sense of worthiness has been lost a sense of um value of being a human being i've heard it said that shame is sort of a sub human feeling that you're below you are below a regular human life and so that is i think what peter is experiencing so if we think about what would it look like for jesus to look at peter in that moment and the look on jesus's face might be disappointment it might be hey i told you so it might be hey i still love you but you need to be humbled and realize that you screwed up realize that I'm a little bit wiser than you at this point, but that look that Jesus might give Peter would give Peter a sense of shame, I believe. And so there's a couple of different things that we can explore when thinking about shame. I can go through and give examples and stories of of what shame looks like. Uh, we can go into the details of, of what shame is and maybe what shame isn't from maybe a psychological or um, perhaps medical emotional perspective um, we can also go into kind of spiritual biblical religious theological perspective on shame so there's a lot of different places to go and and i think with the rise of emotional intelligence in our culture with the value of parenting and and marriage advice that is going around in our culture, that I do think that shame is something that is part of the human experience. But oftentimes, it's kind of this subject we don't like to talk about. 
Uh, so I'm just going to go with some of the notes um, that I've been kind of learning about and experiencing in my own life. One of the things that, that I truly believe in that some people do not believe in is that there are kind of multiple levels of shame. In some languages, there's actually two words for shame. There's kind of a healthy shame and a unhealthy shame. And so in our English language, uh, we just have the one word, shame, but many languages have both a positive and negative version of shame. And I think that there's some value in that, but similar with all languages, like the word love, I don't know if you know this, but we have one English word for love, but the Greeks had four words for love, and that's typically where we get a lot of our English languages from, Greek and Latin, so and other languages too, but we do have kind of a simplicity in the English language sometimes. So with shame, I think there's two kinds of shames. There is a toxic shame and a kind of life-destroying shame. So toxic shame is one, but there's also kind of in a biological, natural, um, innate shame that happens. And a lot of these notes are coming from a book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw. So uh, he's going to talk about these two types of shame. And I, I really, I, I kind of hesitate to use kind of healthy shame and unhealthy shame, but um, I am going to use it throughout this podcast and try to clarify the unhealthy shame being toxic shame. And then I'll talk about kind of healthy shame. So let's go with the little uh, simpler thing, uh, simpler word for me, which is shame is a form a of health and self-protection and self-preservation uh, that our body has. So shame can develop as uh, very young, healthy shame is a matter of shyness. So if you think about a little child who is getting to know somebody for the first time, they're going to be shy. And that is a healthy, protective um, reason to experience shame, especially for a little kid who is close to their parents, who is close to being around their family. When they go into public and they're around a bunch of strangers, there's a protective shyness. And so that can be kind of a healthy shame. Um, as we get older in life, there is also um, curiosity. And so when we are curious about trying to learn how to swim, uh, we jump into a pool and we might get kind of scared and we get scared and curious about how cold the water is, how deep the water is. When, when we are trying to learn how to swim, we're experiencing kind of this curiosity and maybe even like a shyness. I'm going to tiptoe and slowly get into the pool instead of jump in the pool. That's a level of curiosity and, and shyness uh, that can develop. And this is, again, when we're thinking about, like, little kids. Little kids kind of are able to, we're able to see this easier than when we're adults. But I was trying to think of, okay, what's kind of a pool analogy for jumping in the pool for adults? I, I think uh, for some people like myself, when I get into a, uh, a new job, so when I start working with new people, when I'm starting to drive 
to a new place that I work, getting close to, or getting close to a, like a new desk and a new environment at work and new people and new responsibilities, I can, I can be kind of curious and kind of shy when I first start at this new job. So I think that is sort of an analogy of what it can be like for a adult to kind of experience this kind of healthy level of shame. Also, when we think about doing something wrong um, or we think about making a mistake, that can, that can be um, guilt. So the guilt is I did something wrong. And so that can kind of be a form of what I believe Bradshaw is getting at with this healthy shame. So sometimes guilt is a word that I think English uses, whereas really another way to describe it is just a healthy level of shame can be that guilt. But certainly the other ways that we experience shame, like in a unhealthy shame, is shame can make us, as I said, make us seem subhuman. So this toxic shame can um, basically say to the person, I am a defective person, there is something wrong with me. And I think that in a, uh, a world where we are meant to be very capable, intelligent, smart individuals, we can kind of be filled with this toxic shame of feeling not good enough. <coughs> Excuse me. So sometimes we by ourselves or me by myself, I can think, oh, I'm not good enough at blank, whether it is school or work or church, I'm not good enough at something. And I used to think I'm the only person that experiences this not good enough. But really, this is a part of being human that we all wrestle with. And so in a sense, I think this language of not being good enough and being comparing ourselves to others, that can be a part of the shame that we all experience that is kind of just a part of being human. However, it can be toxic when we start hiding and suppressing those feelings of not good enoughness. I don't think that's a word. But when we start not being able to say, oh, I'm embarrassed, or we start not to be able to say, oh, I'm not feeling very worthy today. When we ignore these feelings and we hide and suppress them, when we start hiding those feelings of shame, that's when it becomes more toxic. So if we think about kind of a timeline of what um, shame could look like, let's say when you're a kid, you don't know how to hide anything. When you're three to eight, three to eight years old, then you might experience a, um, curiosity and questions that we talked about. Then let's say you're eight to thirteen years ago, eight to, eight to thirteen years old, you have all these questions, but you know you start getting bullied. By kids, you start getting made fun of by kids. Middle school can be very rough on kids. Maybe you have an older sis, uh, sibling that picks on you a lot. So then we start getting bullied. So we start to kind of hide. Then 13 to 18 is when that person with toxic shame can develop a lot of isolation, a lot of confusion, a lot of hiding, and that can develop into that toxic shame. And really, I've heard toxic shame described as. Um, hell 
And one of the ways that we look at hell is never finding your true self, being lost. Sometimes the Christian language we, we use in church is being lost. That is basically about not being able to find yourself and not being true to yourself. That's a form of hell, a form of isolation. Um, we can maybe go into another time talking about what hell is, but I think one of the things that it is is when you are living in so much um, shame that you're not able to find your true self, that you're not able to be willing to talk, you're not able to be honest with who you are or with anybody else. That develops this toxic shame of the hiding. And this can really, that toxic shame at this point in your life, 13 to 18 year old, if that keeps building, that can really become kind of a core belief. And that core belief can become an identity for your true self. And so your identity just becomes shame. Your identity becomes a lack of connection with others, but also a lack of connection with yourself. Um, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but there is, in order to be healed emotionally, we have to be able to feel it. So there's no healing without feeling. And so if we're not able to express our feelings with others um, publicly, you know, grief and um, loss, they must be experienced. They must be a public thing to, to mourn together is kind of how we heal together. You don't have funerals by yourself. You have funerals with people that knew the person that passed. And so that's very important to understand that in order to heal from shame, we have to feel and be loved by those around us. And so this toxic shame creates this core belief that you are kind of unworthy to be loved or I'm unworthy to be loved. And so toxic shame becomes the, the identity of a person. And really, this is a person divided against a person's self, him or herself is divided because nobody goes through life not experiencing feelings. We might suppress them, we might ignore them, we might hide them, but they're still in us. And so when you are a person or I am a person that has these feelings, but I'm not expressing them and they're sitting inside, I'm still experiencing those feelings. I'm not, those feelings are still in me. However, I'm not addressing them, so I'm almost dividing myself. And so that's what happens with, um, with shame. We kind of alienate our own self. So toxic shame um, creates a distance from our, our brain to our heart, or our heart to our brain, or our mind to our um, emotions. You know, however you want to say this, we're kind of divided our own feelings and our own self is divided. So what happens when we're divided? Well, we don't have a lot of confidence in ourselves. We feel subhuman. And so how do we deal with others? Well, we might become a people pleaser or a yes man or a yes woman that just whatever anybody says, we say, yes, I'll do that. So if somebody's saying, oh, you're going to make fun of me. Okay, well, I'm not going to try to stop you from making fun of me. I'm just going to let you do it. That's a yes man. And also another term for this yes man could be like a people pleaser or perhaps a doormat. So all of these languages are kind of this same idea that you let people dictate everything to you and you're never dictating to others. You're never saying no when somebody is saying something that is false about you. 
Because if somebody's bullying you or somebody's making fun of you, like a little kid or even as an adult, and we're not saying no and we're accepting that, well, then that is basically telling that person, oh, yeah, that's correct. That's correct. We're telling, we're giving honor to that person's idea. And if that idea is false, but we're not standing up to that idea, then that's going to become part of our identity. And so this doormat or people pleaser or yes man or yes woman, you know, that really can create um, big problems if we if we allow that to happen um, young in our life. And I think that's why bullying is such a big topic right now. The other thing that I think we we notice is a lot of the toxic shame ultimately is a spiritual problem because I believe each person was made in the image of God. I believe each person was made to be a good human being that God has created. And I believe that each person has a body, a soul, a mind that is godly, that is created by God. So we can really dishonor ourselves, dishonor our God, and dishonor maybe our true identity of our, our spiritual self when we are experiencing shame. Because the subhuman is almost a dishonor to who we were created by. <clears throat> Another way how, you know, going back to this idea of how does shame affect my relationships with others? Shame can be about perfectionistic. And so if we have so much shame that everything has to be right in our life, then we can we can go one way, which is an outward identity that is perfect and perfectionistic. So I can look like I have it all together, even though inward, inwardly <clears throat> I am completely um, built with this idea that I'm subhuman, that I'm not good enough, but from the outside I act like I have it all together. So this perfectionistic lifestyle can develop from a person with deep, deep shame. <clears throat> also, there's the opposite, which is completely unperfectionistic, <clears throat> completely um, built with this idea of not being good enough, but then we do show it. So we have no confidence in ourselves. We might not take care of ourselves. We might not... Um, maybe bathe because we're experiencing so much shame that we just don't care how we look. We don't care um, what clothes we wear. We don't care if we smell. And so this can be something that happens for a person experiencing a lot of shame that they just stop taking care of themselves. So it's, it's hard to see shame. It's a very internal thing. This toxic shame is very internal. And if we think about spirituality, if we think that toxic shame is a spiritual problem, then it's hard to see somebody's spirituality. I can look at you, you can look at me, but that doesn't mean a whole lot that we know each other about our spirituality. Um, that is very internal sometimes. And now I do think that our spirituality needs to be lived out and we can we can have outward experiences that show us um, that we are spiritual beings, that we do take care of, uh, of others. But a lot of times it's very difficult to see. And so that's the way shame is. Shame is difficult to see sometimes because we can act like we have it all together and act very confident and we think, oh, that person, they're, 
you know, they must think really well of themselves. Look at how they dress, look at how they talk, look at how much money they make. And that can be uh, a sign of, oh, wow, this person has it all together. But that can be a perfectionistic shame. Or we can look at somebody and say, okay, they're not making very much money. They don't talk with confidence. They don't really dress with confidence. Okay, well, that person, they must be they must be dealing with shame because look at how they take care of themselves on the outside. So either way, um, a person can be dealing with shame. And ultimately, shame is a, a problem with, as I've said, with ourselves. It's, it's really kind of this internal battle. And so I want to talk about um, how shame looks for women and how shame looks for men. And then I think I'm just going to kind of wrap it up here because we've already gone 25 minutes and I, and I don't want this to go too, too much longer than 30 minutes. Um, so here's an idea of how um, a woman might experience shame. She probably has this idea that I'm supposed to look perfect, that I'm supposed to do perfect, and that I'm supposed to be perfect. Um, she has this idea that she's never skinny enough that she is never a good enough mom. And so women have to juggle this idea of not only being very good at what they do, but they have to look good while they do it. Um, I think there's a lot of comparison that goes on between uh, women with each other. And that this idea of where women are worried about being judged by other moms as not being good enough Women are worried that they're not skinny enough compared to other women who are skinny. And so I just think it's really an uphill battle in our culture uh, for women. And when I say culture, I kind of mean the Western American culture that, that I live in. That this uh, culture really asks a lot of women because not only are they supposed to do everything perfectly, but they're supposed to look perfect as they're being perfect. So not only are you supposed to be a good mom, but you're supposed to look very athletic and be very um, beautiful on the outside. And also you're supposed to be this great mom on the outside as all. Well. So that's very, very challenging. For men, it's a little bit different. For men, it's not so much about being perfect. It's about not looking weak. So for men, they're not supposed to look weak. And if they're ever perceived as being weak, then they're going to experience shame that way. So if I'm not good at sports and I'm failing on the football field or I'm failing in my marriage or if a man is failing in how he uh, displays himself at work, he's not making enough money, then that's a term of, of failure and, that, and that's weak because we're not strong enough to lift a bunch of weights or to run really fast or get a lot of money from the work that we have. And so men experience a lot of shame from their uh, physical being and their emotional being if they're perceived as weak. So kind of the saying of, you know, true men don't cry or grown men don't cry, that can be perceived, you know, we think of tears as being weak. So men aren't supposed to show that, that they can be weak Men aren't supposed to ask for help, you know, kind of this thing of, you know, men never ask for directions. Well, that's about shame because men are not supposed to not supposed to need help. We're supposed to be able to do everything on our own. And this is just uh, something that I've came up with. But for women, shame is about being a skinny mommy 
And for men, shame is about not being weak at work. And so those are kind of just the quick phrases that I want us to, to think about. So I know we've dived into a lot in this subject, and I hope that to talk more about shame in other subjects, but I really want us to kind of close with this idea that if you are experiencing a lot of not good enough language, you wake up in the morning and you think, I did not get enough sleep. I did not get up early enough. I am not eating healthy enough. Oh, I didn't leave early enough from my house, so now I'm going to be late to work. And if I'm late to work, then I'm not good enough at my job. And then as I'm late to work and I'm not eating healthy and I slept in, but I didn't sleep enough, and now I'm trying to run off my kid to take my kid to school before I'm late to my meeting at work, then I'm not a good enough mom or I'm not a good enough dad. So we think about all these messages, and let's say it's only 9 a.m., but we've already had so many messages of not good enough, not good enough at sleeping, not good enough at parenting, not good enough at my job, not eating healthy enough. Think about all these messages that can happen, and that's by 9 a.m. So how do we combat shame? How do we combat this feeling of shame, this feeling of not being good enough? How do we combat the toxic shame in our life? So when we think about Peter, going back to that story of Jesus looking at Peter and Peter weeping and Peter saying to himself, I am not good enough to be a follower of this man, Jesus. Think about all these things, and I know it's kind of a downer message, but um, in the future I hope to talk about how do we combat shame. But right now, I just wanted to dive into, kind of dip our toes in the pool of what this shame looks like. This pool of shame is deep. It can be toxic shame. It can be healthy shame. But there's always kind of this language, I think, that is in us. And the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that it's there. So if you are experiencing the not good enough language, I really encourage you to talk to someone. Get that shame out in public. Don't keep it inside you because when it's inside you as we talked about we become somebody who's divided against ourselves because we can't get rid of those feelings and in order to heal you have to feel well i really appreciate everybody listening to me today and i know we ran a little bit longer but i'm just really grateful the opportunity and this has been winter faith with fraser Andy out. Years ago, the early 30s, there was trouble. A whole nation of discouraged people. Till left the army.